invite you to enter this portal of strange and unimaginable. I simply ask that you suspend your judgment and expand your mind in the vastness of the unknown. Come witness the wonder that is our reality. The truth is out there, and so am I. Wife of a demon hunter, extraordinary tales of all things paranormal. Hello, my name is Dorinda Stewart, and I am the wife of a demon hunter. Hello, Dorinda Stewart here, wife of a demon hunter. Today, my guest is Dr. Ian Rubenstein, who is a UK doctor who works in Enfield, North London, England, who happens to be a medium. The author of his latest the author, his latest book, Consulting Spirit, A Doctor's Experience with Practical Mediumship. Welcome, Ian. Ah, nice to be here. I'm honored to be on your podcast. Oh, I'm excited to have you on my show, actually. I think I find this very, very cool, <laughs> what you do. So let's uh, get to the, the root of this, okay? So during a busy clinic, you had an unexpected visitor. And so could you explain to my um, audience what happened there? Well, there's a preamble to it. Um, I was, I held, this is nine, 2003, so I have uh, 19 years ago now. Um, so I was in my late 40s and I had a very tricky family situation. I'd fallen out with my parents and... Um, basically been ousted from the family and I, and I realized that we were a damaged family um, that there had been family trauma in the past and because of, I'm, I'm, I'm a family physician we call it G GP in this country I think a general practitioner I think you do yeah general practitioner mm -hmm. yeah. yeah so I um, and, and we're very central it, the way it works in the UK is is that we are the backbone of the health service so every patient that needs to be see a doctor has to go through the general practitioner service first it's a socialized healthcare system so you're you're allocated patients so you see everything everything comes through your through your door and you get a lot of experience um i've been a gp i qualified i entered general practice for, uh, in 1982 so and talking about 2003 so i've been quite experienced by then i had a lot of experience in um counseling and uh, that sort of the psychodynamic approach to medicine um, and uh, I found myself in a difficult situation with my own family, and I was looking to my wider family. Um, I suppose it started, really, with the Kosovan War. One of my patients had been, um, was a refugee from the Kosovan conflict. Mm. And I remember looking at, um, she was in my room, um, and she'd been raped, actually, and she had a, 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 a three-year-old daughter with her. I remember looking at three-year-old daughter and thinking, that three-year-old daughter could be my grandmother because, um, you know, I come from a Jewish background and my, my family fled the ethnic cleansing pogroms of the late uh, 19th century. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking of that little girl, what, what traumas is she going to have as a result of this? And I remember thinking, well, what's happened to my family? Um, so um, that set me off on um, a, um, a personal inqu inquiry because... I'd had some difficulties with my parents um, and my sister, which I, I traced to my family, my wider family, and I realized that it had to do with my grandfather, my mother's father, who'd uh, set up a bakery business in London's East End, a Jewish bakery, and he'd had, it was very successful. He had two shops, um, and um, 
Hala. No. <laughs> Hala. You know, bakery. Hala. Absolutely. I had to, yeah, I had yeah, to say yeah, that. Everything. He goes to the works. Yeah, he's a great baker. Um, but he's, he, he, he didn't get on with my uncle. Um, and there'd been family conflict. And um, I'd get into rows with my mum. And she'd start calling me my uncle's name, which was Aubrey. So I clearly, clearly there was something going on. Clearly. So I started thinking about my family and I realized that um, that my mother's father had had a gambling addiction so at the end of the the week he put his hand in the till take the money out and blow it on the horses mm. um, so th- th- there was all sorts of these things going on and I've been thinking about this because I was really quite miserable about it and at the end of a busy clinic one more one, uh, one morning and my, my routine is is the way it goes in the UK or it used to go in the UK before the pandemic is you see your patients uh, in, in morning and evening, you have we call them surgeries. You're not operating; it's called a right. surgery, like a clinic. Right. So we have mm. morning surgery and evening surgery. Um, they would last maybe three hours, and then you go home and do house calls. We used to do a lot of house calls in those days. So, um, and then what I would then do if I got time to go to, to lunch, I'd go for a swim. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd skip lunch and go for a swim, meet my lunch at my desk when I came back. So um, it was the end of my busy morning clinic, and. Um, the last patient hadn't turned up, and it was a bit late. Now, I have a rule. You never hang around for the last patient. You just try and sell they're not going to turn up. So I was just about to, to leave. I got up from my desk, and I felt something push me down. And I tried to get up again, and I felt this. It was like a physical thought, but something made me sit down. And as I sat down, my phone rang, and it was my receptionist, Carol. And she said, oh, your last patient, Mr. Bishop, he's on, he's, his PA is on the phone. He's at the local train station, which is literally five minutes from the health centre. Um, he's on his way. Can you wait? So I said, yeah, begrudgingly, but I'm not going to hang around all day. Um, <laughs> right. So this, this guy, Keith, I've known him for 20 years. He's a, a lovely guy. Um, he originally worked for the BBC. At, in fact, I think BBC Radio. And um, he used his job was to um, look after VIPs that came to the BBC. and look, mm-hmm. look, look after them and run errands for them. And uh, he was so good at his job that actually uh, they would contact him and get him to do things for him. And he knew lots of celebrities. And he ended up setting up um, a, a, a PR firm mm. uh, called Media Celebrity Services. And um, he used to tell me very amazing stories about all the celebrities he'd met. These were B-list celebrities, you know. They weren't, they weren't A-list. But they, they, some celebrities, them, yeah. <laughs> the golfer Nick Faldo, if you heard of him, he looked after Nick Faldo and people like that. Uh-huh. Um, and he was very entertaining. Um, so I thought, oh yeah, I'll hang around for Keith. Um, so Keith came into my room and he was red-faced and puffing because he'd run away from the station. Which didn't bode well because I had to take his blood pressure. So, ah, yeah. so um, he came into my room, um, uh, sorry Doc, sorry I'm late. And then, yeah, then he sat down and preferred, I said, well, how are you doing, Keith? He said, oh, I'm doing this, that and the other. I thought I'd give him a chance to talk and unwind prior to taking his blood pressure. Um, all the while with one eye on the clock thinking, oh, I've got to put my house calls, I'm going to get, go for my swim, I might have to miss it. Then all of a sudden, Keith looked at me and said, I'm terribly sorry, Doc, but I've got this man here. I said, what? He said, I've got this man here. He tells me he's your grandfather, the one you never met. The, the one you never met, and he wants to speak to you. And my first thought was, Keith's gone mad. <laughs> I'm going to have to get the guys in white coats <laughs> right. down. Right. Um, and we call that over here sectioning. They, they get put away under the section of the Mental Health Act, which is uh-huh. impossible because 
you can't get it done here. You, you, you've got to get social workers, and it just takes hours. You know, the men in white coats, they, they, they hide in this country. And you wanted to go home. <laughs> you didn't want to stay all day, right? <laughs> no, he looked at me and he said, um, look, look, um, he said, I, said, I said, Keith, are you telling me you're here, you, you, you speak to spirits? He said, yeah. I said, Keith, I've known you for, I've known you for 19 years by then. I said, how come you never told me this before? He said, well, it's not the sort of thing you'd normally tell your doctor because you think you're mad. And I was thinking, absolutely. <laughs> he said, but he said, now listen. He said, he, he wants to speak to you. Now, I immediately thought, well, hang on a minute. I've been thinking about my my maternal grandfather. Mm-hmm. It's been occupying my mind for about six months. Um, so I thought, okay, Keith, so tell me what you've got. So he, he looked at me and he sort of, um, he didn't go into a trance or anything, but he seemed to be listening to a voice in his head. And he sort of start speaking. And then suddenly it all came out. It just flowed. He said, he's telling me this, telling me that. And I, 20 minutes, he talked nonstop. And by the time he finished, my jaw was on the floor mm. because he actually told me everything that was going on uh, in my family, um, told me how proud he was of, of my family's achievements because we've all done very well, um, and that everything would be fine. Um, and then he sort of snapped out. He didn't, he wasn't a chump. He sort of seemed to come around. He said, was that all right, Doc? He said, I hope didn't say anything to offend you because it wasn't me, it was him. I oh, said, my. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. So he said, um, then he looked at me and said, my guide, my, uh, William says you should be doing this. I said, who's William? He said, he's my guide. I said, what do you mean a guide? He, well, he was my boss at the BBC. When he died, he became my guide. I was thinking, my God, what, what is this? What is this? He's right. um, He said, you should be doing this. I said, what? He said, listening to spirit. Now, I, I never heard the term spirit. Well, listening to spirit, what does that mean? He said, you're like a man on the edge of a cliff. Oh. Um, don't be afraid to take a leap of faith off that cliff. They'll catch you. And with that, he, he left my room. And I, and, and I, I said, basically, this guy I'd known for, for, for 19 years, a, a, a patient of mine, had come into my room, give me a message from my dead grandfather and tell me to jump off the cliff. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, so anyway, so I then, there was an anxious knock on my door and, and Carol, my reception, she said, Ian, you were in with, with Mr. Bishop for so long. Everything all right? And I said, yeah. I said, I, I mean, and she said, oh, that's good, because I'm interested in that. There's, there's this thing on TV, Most Haunted, which was, you know, they're, they're to a penny now. I mean, those days, Most Haunted was was uh, on the telly, and everybody was watching it. And basically, people go to haunted locations. Right, right. I've watched said, it oh, I, before. I believe, I believe in that. I said, well, I don't know what to believe. So... I mean, I just chalked that up to one of those things. But it was very, very intriguing. And from that point on, a series of very odd events happened, which gradually led me down a path which completely changed my worldview and opened me up to incredible experiences. It, um, it was very worrying professionally because, um, well, I mean, I'll tell you this. First of all, uh, yeah, I, odd things started happening, odd coincidences. I started bumping into people I hadn't seen for years. They started talking about spiritual matters. For example, um, I was at a party, uh, a family party, and there was extended family were there. And the first person I bumped into was a woman who said she'd grown up in a haunted house. Things like that. Like, right. I'm not being, coming face to face with this. Um, and it was 
it was becoming um, a bit disturbing, really, because I felt I felt like I was being, you know, like a like a like a, a, a sheepdog. I, I, I was being herded in a direction, by, <laughs> yeah. like, like I was a sheep being right. in a direction by a sheepdog. Um, and then something else happened. Um, so I have I did have an experience when I was nineteen. So. This was a bit odd. Um, when I was 19, uh, I witnessed what spiritualists call transfiguration. So I was at my friend's house uh, with my sister and my friend and his girlfriend. And um, we were talking one evening. And I was sitting next to my sister opposite my friend and his girlfriend. Um, my friend was called Nick. And his girlfriend was called Felicity. And Felicity had long, dark hair. And it was midnight in Nick's front room in his house not far from where I am now and uh, all of a sudden there was someone else there so there was this blonde haired snow queen so it was, I was just looking wow. talking mm -hmm. to Felicity and all of a sudden I see, saw and I, I don't it, it, it was like she was transformed um, to a woman with slightly shorter blonde hair with a, with a, a, a what we call fringe I think you call bangs in the bangs uh, high cheekbones, uh, piercing blue eyes, um, and these very strange, very distorted, white, thick white lips, like they've been haven't formed properly, coated oh. with frosted lipstick. And these blue eyes looked right into me, and I got a message which was mark this. That the, the message was like it was dumped into my mind. We call it a download because mm -hmm. this was summer 1974. Down, down yeah, it wasn't around. Nope, nope. It was plonked into my mind, and it, it, I just knew, mark this, know there's more to life than meets the eye, one day you'll understand. And I just looked, and then I heard my sister screaming at the top of her voice, my God, can you see those lips? And I turned to my sister and said, well, you've seen it too. Look back at this, and she was completely normal. But we both witnessed, uh, witnessed the transformation. medical school. I mean, I was 19. Remember, in the UK, medicine's an undergraduate degree. So it's not a postgraduate degree. So you go to medical school when you're age 18 or 19. So I was in my first year at medical school. I think they were still, still sending people to the moon. I was completely obsessed with science. This was not on my radar. Right, right. So we jumped into my dad's car, uh, took uh, Nick and Felicity home with us. It was now 2 a.m. in the morning. Uh, knocked up my pet... Not, not to, not my parents on the door. Not, got them out of bed. <laughs> hey, can you imagine what they said? Don't look and fleecy, you stupid children. So I phoned my friends the next day, and my friend Steve said, well, "I don't know what this was, Ian, but my next door neighbour's a medium. Why don't you come around and tell him?" So I went round to Steve's house. We were all old school friends, and he introduced me to his neighbour. It was a very strange man called Keith Hudson. Another Keith, not Keith Bishop, not Keith Bishop, my patient, Keith Hudson. Mm -hmm. And Keith was this about nine years older than us, tall, thin, gangling man, uh, and um, prematurely balding, looked a bit strange. They said, well, what you saw him was her spirit guy. And he showed, took a book out mm -hmm. of the spiritualist phenomena and showed me, and I was thinking, okay, Keith. But he looked at me and said, you've got a lot of knowledge around you, and you don't know you know, but you will one day. And I thought, well, that's easy. I'm a medical student. You would say right. that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, fast forward. I just had these weird experiences 27 years later and I told everybody Felicity's face. It was one of the stories I used to tell people at parties. Everything. It was, it was my standard uh, tale to the point where my, my wife was completely sick of it. She was half sick of it. She'd never met Keith Hudson. 
she heard it. Mm. She said, who are you going to tell now? And of course, now I'm telling it to the whole world. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> You're telling to she, the Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so, so she was um, looking at the local paper, and she happened to notice there was a small ad in the uh, back pages for the local spiritualist church, the Beacon of Light spiritualist church. And it said that the medium who was giving a demonstration of clairvoyance was Keith Hudson. She did. Isn't that the Keith Hudson you've been telling me about for years? I said, yeah, it's got to be. She said, well, you've had all these things. Why don't, don't, why don't we go? Now, prior to that, I'd already told a patient, uh, another patient, um, a guy called Dave Godfrey, who's a spiritual healer, that was having these odd experiences. And he'd said, Ian, if spirit wants to work with you, they will do. They'll find a way. Mm-hmm. And I'd already said, look, you know, I'm not really interested. He said, well, and he said, well, you need to train, um, to go to psychic development. Group. I said, where are they? they said, I said, he said, they're at Spiritualist Church. I said, well, look, I'm a, I'm a non-practicing Jew. My wife's a Hindu. People like us don't do right. church. Especially a spiritual church, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, he said, if people want, want to, if spirit wants to work with you, they'll find a way. And then it's the next day that my wife, Poonam, um, saw this small ad, and she said, well, we've got to go. So we went to the Spiritualist Church. I sat at the back trying to conceal myself um, <laughs> because I didn't want to be there. And Keith was pretty, I mean, he was older, but he, he'd lost his hair when he was young, so he looked the same, whereas I've lost my hair now, and I look completely different. So he didn't know who the hell I was. But interestingly, he pointed to me and said, Sir, you have a lot of knowledge around you. You don't know that oh. you know it, but you will very soon, and they are telling me you're going to write a book about it. And at the time, I thought, well, I bet he says that to everybody, but he, he doesn't. <laughs> he didn't. Um, Anyway, so at the end of the service, um, uh, the, the president of the church said, Mr. Uh, Hudson hasn't got a car. Can anyone give him a lift back to, to Walthamstow, which is the next adjacent borough to where, where I live? And I said, yeah. I was, I, I was a bit excited. I, I leapt up, rushed up to him, said, yeah, but only if he comes back to my house and has a cup of tea first. Well, Keith, um, Keith Hudson leapt back a bit because you do get some strange people at Twitch. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I do come across a bit strong sometimes. Um, <laughs> so... Um, when I said, oh, it's Keith, it's me, Ian, Ian Rubenstein. He said, what, the doctor? I said, yeah. He said, oh. He said, yeah, I was talking about you the other day. So he came back to my house. We had a cup of tea. We caught, we caught up with 27 years, you know, of not knowing each other. And then he said, um, well, look, I run the largest open circle in North London. Uh, you don't have to be a spiritualist. Um, just come and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, as it was Keith and as I, I knew him... Um, I joined, so it was beginning of February 2004 on a rainy evening that I pitched up at his spiritualist church and joined the circle. And that's when it all started. Um, as my patient Dave Godfrey said, Spirit obviously wanted to work with me. Um, and that's how I got into it. And then things, uh, originally it started out as just an interest, a personal interest mm-hmm. as to what on earth it could be. And, and, and to, in order to convince myself, because I wasn't, you know, I was really very, very, very uncomfortable with this. It did not sit well with my um, scientific training. Right. I mean, at that, around about the time, I'd spent a lot of time writing computer software. So not only was I doing medicine, I was writing medical software. Uh, so I was really up to my technical stuff and this thing. And I like to think that my conscious mind was actually so preoccupied with the logic that the other stuff, the spooky stuff crept in uh, around the back where I, and, I, and I didn't really notice it. I think it <laughs> yeah. would germinate without me knowing. 
So I remember sitting my first circle, and the, the first guy I sat next to was a, a very thin, emaciated guy called Joe with tattoos. Mm-hmm. He looked like Gollum. scared <laughs> the bejesus out of me. Uh-huh. He's a lovely guy. Uh-huh. I remember he saying, like, he said, I remember sitting next to him, he said, oh, for God's sake, Doc, relax, we're not going to eat you. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, was, uh, it was, I pretty soon, I said, so, so how did I convince myself? I convinced myself that I was, an anth- I was, on, I was doing a study of these strange folk. There was me from my lofty height as the doctor was coming to see how these strange folk and their strange beliefs. But, I, but of course, I, I come from a working class background. Um, so in fact, the area Walthamstow, which is a borough next to the borough of Tottenham in North London where I grew up, actually my cousins lived there. So this was very much, again, an exploration of my past. My cousins used to live, I didn't know this at the time, but they used to live right next door to the Spruces Church. Oh, so wow. I had these and these are the people I went to school with and I grew up with uh, and it was a it, I very soon felt at home but their worldview was completely different from mine I mean it was like I mean I just took it was such a difficult thing for me to to stop overthinking um, it took me ages but but this psychic stuff came through pretty quick I mean I did the um, we'd sit in circle and we'd try and open our minds and the idea was to think of the first thing that came into your head. Pretty soon I was pulling up information. Um, and the way Keith Hudson did it at the time was he used a technique which was developed by a man, uh, a medium in, our, in, in London called Michael Redwin. So we'd sit in a circle. So let's say they, the circles were huge. I mean, the yeah. was great. 27 people yeah. at some time. Huge circle. And what Keith would do was he'd allocate everyone a number. Well, what he'd do is, in his mind, he'd pick, pick someone as being number one. He wouldn't tell, tell anybody who that was. Then he'd work clockwise or anti-clockwise around the circle. So if he knew someone was number one, everybody would have a number going up to 27 or, you know, the maximum number of people in the circle. And the idea was is he wouldn't tell us who he'd pick for number one or which direction he was going in. And the idea was that we would then give a message to a number, but not to a person. Ah, and he assured us that his spirit guide would liaise with our spirit guides to make sure the medicine, uh, the, uh, the the message got through to the right person. So I was thinking, well, this is just crazy stuff. <laughs> but it was, but actually, the appeal was it. You call this a single blind study because I didn't, we didn't know who we were giving the message to. Right. And Keith, really, he could have worked it out, but he wouldn't have known until the end. So it's almost like a double blind trial. In other words, he didn't really know who the numbers were until the end. And we certainly didn't know. Right. And I've had some interesting experiences. The numbers would change each week. But I found I would track certain people for a couple of weeks. So one week it would be Jenny. I'd be giving her messages. And and the next week the number would change. I'd still end up giving a message to Jenny. And then the third week. But then it would go on to Joe or somebody else. And I couldn't work out how that happened. And also, the messages were, were quite accurate, often. I mean, I mean, I remember I once saw an image of uh, water leaking somewhere, and um, it was for Joe, and um, he didn't know what it was. The next week he came back and said, Oi, Doc, the next time you give me a message, give me the name of a good plumber, give me washing <laughs> Yeah, I exactly. That. I was thinking, where is this coming from? And, and that was just getting very intriguing. And I gradually got used to so used to it, um, and then um, 
unexpectedly it started to happen whilst I was with my patients. And that's when it really sort of became, well, that's when I really started to worry. Well, do you think that that was uh, something that was um, uh, good, though? I mean, were you pretty... Because it's like the whole person, because, you know, a lot of people, the disease or disease that happens with people can be something that's within their mind or something that has nothing to do with what's happening. It would, you know, I'd like your heart got, condition I'd, I'd already, or things. Absolutely, I mean, I'd already got there. I mean, you, at, at the medical school, you start off learning to make a physical diagnosis. Then when yeah. you're a doctor, a young doctor, you know that the psychology has a point, has right? A, has a, a a role, and then as a as a GP, as a family doctor, you, you learn that the, the social milieu has a role. So you see the person in terms of their physiology, their psychology, their um, their their social, you know, their their, their environment. And then, of course, when you get to a certain age, you begin to realize that patients are looking for a meaningful life. We're on to the spiritual diagnosis now, with a small s. In other words, what's the meaning of life? So I'd already got to help, trying to help people find out what the meaning of their life was. So this was really something I was used to. But the idea that I was getting messages from spirits was weird. So the first time it happened was sort of gently. They got me into it gently. It was the end of a. It was at the end of a. Of, of a circle, and uh, one of the women, uh, Mary, came up to me and she said, "Ian, who's that World War Two German soldier standing be- behind you? He was tall, thin, and he, she could describe him. He was tapping his his foot." And I said, um, "He said, is anyone in your family was in you know World War Two German?" I said, "Well, bearing in mind that my family are Jewish and that my my cousin Lottie was one of the last Kinder transport, I don't think so." She said, "Well, um, she described him." And very, very well. And I, she said, well, it might be someone you know. Well, the only person I knew who, that, who could have been attached to was my, my, uh, was my patient, Ellie, Ellie Richardson. Now, Ellie was German. Uh, she'd married Tony, who was a member of the British Occupying Forces at the end of the Second World War, and had come over to the UK. And I had a very close relationship with her. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony had died. I'd looked after Tony um, through his final illness. And Ellie, uh, I used to see her quite often because she had a bad chest. I used to see her at home a lot. So I remember thinking, God, this could be it. This could be for Ellie. I must go around and tell her. It was nine, half past nine on a, thir- on a Thursday evening on a February winter's night. I thought, well, she, if your doctor turns up in your door and saying, hey, I've got a message for you. <laughs> Something you might know. Anyway, <clears throat> as luck would have it, she was booked into my clinic the next morning at 8.30. And I remember thinking... I wonder what his name is. And I heard a voice in my head. I didn't quite hear it. It was like in my inner voice. Carl Heinz. I thought, ah, rubbish. Anyway, she came into my room. And I remember, I thought, how am I going to tell this to her? You know, without sounding like a complete idiot. <laughs> so I said, oh, Ellie, um, I mean, I knew her really well. We were very comfortable with each other. And I said, oh, Ellie, I had an interesting experience last night. I, I went to, uh, uh, you know, I've been uh, sitting in a psychic development circle. And she said, oh, she said, I'm into that. She said, ever since Tony died, I've been seeing Maisie at number 21, her neighbour. She's, she's, she's a medium. I said, oh, that's interesting. So I said, well, actually, I've got this message from one of the people. Could you take it? And I described this man. And she said, yeah, that's my former boyfriend before I met um, Tony. His name was Karl Heinz. Oh, my he goodness. He Panzer Regiment and got killed. I remember thinking, my first thought was, Oh God! I wish I'd told. I wish I'd given the name first. I know. That would have been a really, really good message. I remember thinking, well, that, that's interesting. 
But then it wasn't me. I was just relaying the message. But the first time I ever gave a proper message, which was absolutely jaw-dropping, was uh, my patient um, uh, Lucy. So Lucy, um, and I still look after this sheep, and she doesn't mind me telling telling this story. Uh, at the time, she was 66, or so my age. Um, she came into my room, and she burst into tears. Now, I'd never known Lucy to be depressed. She's a bubbly Irish lady. Um, and she just cried and cried. She said, Doctor, I don't know why I'm depressed. Um, I, I took a story from I couldn't work out why. Um, and I was about, and I, I, I don't like using antidepressants, but I just uh, typed it out, prescription on my computer for Cisalopram, an antidepressant. And as I reached to my computer to take the prescription out of the printer, I felt a blow to the back of my head. And I, heard, I literally heard a voice ask her about her father. And with that, over her left shoulder, I could see the misty outline of a man. And I just heard myself saying, Lucy, tell me about your dad. And she looked at me and said, oh, he, he was killed uh, 38 years ago by the IRA. Do you think oh. that's why I'm depressed? And so that, the date of his death was the 8th of December, and it was now the 6th of December. So it was an anniversary effect. I said, did he just look like, and describe what he looked like? And she said, yes, how do you know? I said, Lucy, I think I can see him over your shoulder. At which point she grabbed my arm clung onto it and said, thank you so much, you don't know what this means to me. So, although she was Catholic, at the time of the Troubles, he spoke out against it, and he he, he ended up being shot by someone, because they always assumed it was the IRA mm -hmm. speaking out against what they were doing, the bombings. Um, but, she, but she'd always felt her father was around her, but was told not to believe that because they're Catholic. Catholics don't believe that. So when I said this, she immediately put two and two together, and she, she brightened up me and she said, now I know why I'm depressed. She said, I don't need your silly pills. <laughs> and thank you very much. And she left my room. And I thought, well, that's it. I've had it. You know, the medical board's going to be on to me. It's called the General Medical Council. <laughs> I'm going to be struck off. Um, and I was, I was devastated. Um, actually, I was also sort of amazed that I'd seen this. Anyway, four weeks later, she comes back to see me. And all smiles. So I said, Lucy... What's wrong? She said, nothing. So I said, why have you come to see me? She said, I've come to tell you a story. So two weeks after I'd seen her, she'd gone to her Irish social club, and this creepy guy had, a, had to sort of come up to her in the hallway before they get, went into the function room. And I said, uh, it was known to have the second sight. And everybody thought it was a bit of a creep. She said, Lucy, Lucy. Um, she, pulling, she said, he was pulling up my coattails. She, and, she, and she said, what do you want? She said, he said, um, come to this room. I've got a message for you. She said, well, if you've got a message for me, give it here right now in the hall. He said, do you know there's a fellow over your left shoulder? I think it's your father. And she said, well, of course I do. My doctor told me that two weeks ago. <laughs> and she said, you know what, doc? That sure took the wind out of his sails. So, but the thing, the, the, the thing was, it, that had been profoundly healing for her. And that's when I realized that this was really something that had enormous potential. And um, I was going to pursue it. And that's where it started. And I've been pursuing it ever since. So how did your peers feel about your mediumship? Um, well, I, the way it works in the UK is we're, we're practicing small partnerships of doctors. So there's a, at the time there were six of us. Um, you would imagine that, I mean, we're doing serious stuff here. I mean, right. know, we, we, we're basically employed by the government to look after the health of, of a defined population. 
Um, and you did you think that if one of them started saying, "Hey, I think I'm going to dead," <laughs> right? My my partner Anthony said, "Well, of course you would have to because you're such a bad doctor. Most of your patients <laughs> dead anyway. Anyway, you're a um, as a joke." Um, but no, they were surprisingly um, supportive because um, because my feet were on the ground um, because I was still I, I wasn't buying it hook line and sinker. I mean, I still have some healthy skepticism of it. I mean, what what are we really doing here? Is it really dead people? And for a long time, I would not commit. As time's gone on, I'm becoming more committed to the fact that I think, on balance, it probably is. There's a continuation. Mm -hmm. My heart certainly believes it. My head still, there's still this little thing saying now it's all a bit silly, but that's my scientific training. Right, the science versus the spirit. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly, exactly. So, but I think um, I've had enough evidence over the years. And and also, the the patients found it very useful. I I did get one complaint from a patient, and this just illustrates how different doctors and the lay public see these things. This woman came to see me, and she had a bad knee. And I examined her knee. I gave her the appropriate treatment. She left my room. She then put in the, in the complaint to the practice manager, and the complaint was, "My brother, my my, my father-in-law died two weeks ago. And Doctor Riverside didn't give me a message." For me. Oh no! So oh I, no! I just accepted. Right. That was an eye opener because it, it, I realised then. I mean, I learned so many lessons that the way doctors see the world is completely different from even the way their educated patients see the world. Mm-hmm. So I've been basically t- talking words and expecting my patients to understand them but i hadn't really made that god knows they you know what, what they may not have been hearing the word they may have heard the words but not not taken the same meaning that that, that was a profound insight i got so many insights over the years i've given loads of messages to patients i use it now for bereavement counseling it deepened my um my relationship with my patients it, they took off to another level it profoundly um, uh, affected the way I felt about my work to the point now where I, I should be retiring. It's very hard to because I'm profoundly connected with my with my patients, mm-hmm. um, and it's been it's been amazing. I mean, and also, I mean, you know, I, it's got. I, I ended up writing a book about it. I ended up uh, being on a TV documentary about it. Yes, and I was expecting bad things to happen, but as my as Keith said, my grandfather said. If you just trust and, you know, and let it happen, obviously be sensible um, and do it with good intention, then um, luckily it just was was a very, very good thing. Very cool. Um, it's interesting. So when you retire, uh, Ian, you're going to probably have to open up a little, you know, a little metaphysical shop so that they can go in and, and do re- and do readings because people are going to want that. that, that, that when I retire, fully, I'm going to open up a tent in the park. <laughs> That's right. And uh, cross my palm with silver and I'll give you a reading. But but I mean, I, I mean I, I'm reducing my hours at work now because I am, I, the pandemic is completely stalled. Sure. I mean, I mean, the health service is virtually broken down. We're working all the hours and I've had to reduce my hours but um, but interestingly even that was interesting because we, we moved to virtual consulting and I discovered you could do it over Zoom <laughs> yes exactly that's right I mean, always, but, but it, to some extent it's even better because because you don't have the same um, uh, visual cues that you do so when you're with a patient when you're with someone in the room you're always thinking of a cold reading so you know because you, you can't help observing them um, their mannerisms and that that can actually, with a with a mediumship reading, 
if you begin to put that onto it, you can lead, lead you astray. Whereas if you do it when you can't see the person, or not very well, I found that actually the readings were often better, more evidential. Mm-hmm. So that's, again, it's all a learning <clears throat> well, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, and I'm really kind of sad about that because I have, it's almost as if you read all my cues and questions and you answered every one. <laughs> so therefore, um, this guy's for real. He is a medium, okay? Uh, so anyway, um, I'm going to end it, but I was wondering, would you want to continue on? Because I do have some more questions. So I'm going to end this session and continue on with a part two. Does that sound okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sure. All right. So um, <clears throat> this is Dorota Stewart, wife of a demon hunter. Part two coming up next.